and, and Marlene, they're great uh, friends of ours, and I have uh, known this congregation by reputation a lot of years when I was a, a much, much, much younger preacher, and I preached in Gwin, Alabama. Um, I was introduced to you through one of your elders at that time, Brother Grady Gwin. And he had a lot of kinfolks in that little town named after him, Gwin. And a highly respected man, so I had occasions over a number of years to, to meet him in different gospel meetings and things like that. And so every time I hear Midway, I think about him. Uh, in an unfortunate way, my wife and I were on vacation with a, one of the elders at Blackwater, Macedonia back in 1988. And uh, he called back home, and we found out your building had burned. And uh, so we won't, you know, that kind of, uh, again, fixed midway in our, our minds. That was a, a, a tragic, sad time for all of you. But um, it's good to be with you this morning and to talk about some things that maybe will enlighten us a little bit about how to be proactive in making some end-of-life decisions. Uh, Generally speaking, and uh, as was mentioned in the introduction, my wife and I uh, do a lot of uh, counseling, speaking about counseling. Uh, just so you know, I didn't set out to be a counselor. I wanted to be a minister. And as soon as I started preaching, folks assumed I knew how to counsel. And um, I was a young man. Uh, I wanted to preach the gospel. I had a pretty good knowledge after going to preacher school, but didn't have a whole lot of life experience, and people were bringing pretty serious life experiences to me and wanting me to help them sort it out, and I was um, out of my element and over my head, and so I went back to school just out of self-defense. I thought, I'm going to push somebody over the edge. If, if I quote one more scripture to someone who's distraught, uh, they're going to think it's just no hope for me. That's just one more thing I'm not mastering and I can't do. And uh, I could see the frustrations in their eyes. They wanted to do what's right, but they didn't have the background to do it. And once I got a little schooling, then people really thought I knew how to counsel. Uh, uh, if you get a degree, they think, boy, this is an expert. That wasn't my intentions to become a, uh, an expert counselor. I wanted to be the very best minister I could be. And if folks are going to come to me, I want to be able to take them where, where they were in their context of life and uh, get them coherent enough in their thinking and their processing of information so they can make the right decision in their relationship with the Lord and the right relationship with their families, uh, the right relationship with their uh, jobs, all those things that affect us. I just want to be able to do that well. And... Uh, I hope that's improved who I am as a minister. I still am a minister. That's who I want to be, and that's what I want to do. I've been forced to read hundreds and hundreds of books, and I, I do emphasize force to read those books. Some of those are not easy reads when you're seeking a counseling degree. Um, and I have those degrees not to impress someone, just because I have a, a master's degree in counseling or a Ph.D. in marriage and family therapy, that. That doesn't change anything other than hopefully has equipped me to, uh, to help more people. But in those reading of those books, uh, here's what I've discovered. There's not one single principle, without exception, in those books that works. Now, there are a lot of principles in those books that don't work. But there's not one single principle in all those books that works that's not a Bible principle. Now, the folks who wrote the textbook don't always know that. You know, they tried something and it didn't work, and they tried something else and it didn't work, and they kept trying things, and they finally said, ah, this works. Well, God had already told us that works. So they just had never been introduced to God, and they took the long way around. And so having been raised in a spiritual environment and heard the Scriptures all my life, my very earliest memories are falling asleep with my mother reading the Scriptures to us. And so I've had the answers from God's Word, but I didn't have the life experience and the immediate context to help people emotionally and mentally and contextually uh, to apply those scriptures. And I think God intended for us to do that. So in this hour, I've been asked to deal specifically with uh, making end-of-life decisions. And 
you don't read in the scriptures very long until that utopian environment where Adam and Eve could live forever was interrupted. And once they disobeyed God and they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then uh, the death process started. From that time forward, man's been separated from the tree of life, and so guess what? Um, death is part of life. It just is. When you get to Genesis chapter 5, it's kind of stark to us to, to read person after person after person's name, and it says they lived and then they died. Now, some live longer than others, but they all lived and then they died. We don't know a whole lot about some of those folks other than just their names and how long they lived. Uh, we pull some of those out from the scriptures that, that tell us what they did while they was here. People like Noah. And what impresses us about Noah is two passages in the last part of, of Genesis chapter 6 and the first part of Genesis chapter 7. It said of Noah, of all things commanded Noah of God, so did he. So when we're talking about end-of-life circumstances, we have to start with, we need to recognize, need to understand, we need to consult God's will. What does God want us to do? First of all, God wants us to respect, to honor, and to utilize life. Life is from God. And He wants us to respect that. He wants us to value that. Now, some of our life experiences are more difficult than others, but it's still life. And we ought to realize that it comes from God, and we ought to be wise about how we go about using that. A passage that kind of helps us, a good starting place, is found in, in Romans chapter 12, where Paul is writing to Roman Christians, and he said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present, listen, your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Being not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your minds that you might prove, here it is, what is that good, perfect, and acceptable will of God. So if you were to just sum it up, that's where we have to start. If we're going to make end-of-life decisions, we have to recognize where life comes from. And no matter the circumstances, realize whatever context of life we have, that we have that of God. And, and it may be that we have to navigate some difficulties, but let's use our existence here, our, while we're in the body, let's use that as a living sacrifice to God. Knowing that we're going to die. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27 is the point of the man wants to die. And after that, the judgment. Well, what's the judgment going to be about? It's going to be about measuring whether we've done the will of God or not. When? While we were alive. And so we start there and make sure that if we're making the end of life decision, that needs to be in the midst of living life as God would have us to live. And then make those decisions that if something happens to us and we get to the capacity or lack of capacity where we cannot make decisions for ourselves, are there things in place that allow other people to know what our will is? If we respect God's will, we consult God's will about our decisions in life, it allow us then to construct a will our wishes for the end of our life. Now, we don't dictate that to God. We can't tell God when we're going to, uh, you know, here's the way I want to die. How many of us have said, you know, I kind of want to die in my sleep at night, just kind of fade away. But we don't get to choose that. You know, life happens. Circumstances of life, our, our genetics play a part in that, and our, our uh, health in a, uh, an environment in which we live has a something to do with that. Accidents happen. All kinds of things can occur in life. But in the process of us saying, I know I'm going to live, I am living, but I'm going to die. Now, that's not to be morbid. You know, there's some people that talk about that all the time, you know. 
Boy, I've got a, uh, I'm one of 11 children, by the way. Just to tell you another reason probably I had to go into counseling. Um, uh, one of 11, I've got six sisters and, and they're five boys. And so in that process, uh, we get together the Saturday after Thanksgiving every year and still have our family reunion. And we're kind of like the red Chinese. You know, we just, there's so many of us, you can't count us. They just keep, keep coming. So we have to rent a place at a state park because none of us have a house big enough to, uh, you know, you put up a gourd and the Martins are going to show up. And so that, uh, there's a whole bunch of us. So we go to a state park. And, uh, but I have a sister, a couple of sisters, but one in particular. And every year, you can just count on it. She said, well, we really need to enjoy this. This may be the last time we're together. Well, that's true. It may be the last time we're together, but why bring it up while we're together? You know, it's uh, enjoy it. It's okay to say, let's enjoy this, but here's this cloud. Boy, we better enjoy this because this may be the last time we're together. Just changes the whole context a little bit, doesn't it? Well, let's do enjoy life, and, and let's not worry about what if this is the last time from a, a morbid sense, but say, you know, I'm going to plan how I want things to take place, decisions to be made concerning me, not because I'm a self-centered person and, and I want everybody to cater to my needs, but I don't want everybody to have to worry about what my wishes are or how to take care of things after I'm gone. That's kind of how God did us, didn't it? He told us what He wanted ahead of time. And that's what we are to give ourselves to, is to make sure that we implement that will. <coughs> My father um, found out he had cancer, and uh, in that circumstance, there, my parents divorced when I was, I was young, and so I had a kind of an estranged relationship with my father, but um, in that, those last, that last period of time, the doctor said he had six months to live, and he lived six months. But in that process, he got obsessed with taking care of things. He had to drive him around, and he had to personally pay people that he owed. He didn't want to die with anybody, him owing anybody. And I drove him to the, the lawyer, and he went into the lawyer's office and, and drew up his will. Don't know if he had a will before then or not. Uh, didn't go in there with him. Uh, didn't know what the will was until after he passed away. And my brother and I were the executors of his will, and so we read it for all 11 children to hear it. Guess what it contained? His will what he wanted. Now his was sped up a little bit. I don't know how much preparation he'd made before then, but I know how intense he got then because there wasn't anything they could do to extend his life and he realized the certainty of his death and the, the proximity of, of his death would be six months. So he's very serious about it. So when you think about those things, um, you can't start too early, and all of us are in here old enough to, to understand that we ought to have, in our context, uh, a living will. Denise and I have uh, buried all of our parents, and uh, all of them, thankfully, uh, were proactive in expressing what they wanted done. Not just in dividing things up, but what they wanted done at their funeral, who they wanted to preach their funeral. The songs that they liked. And so you not only need a will, uh, and that is to uh, stipulate, this is what I possess, this is who I want it to go to, this is how I want it to be done, but a living will to say, this is what I don't want done. You know, if I get to this point and my health is deteriorated, you know, I don't want all these heroic things done when I know there's not anything that can be done to really extend my life. And we're not talking about euthanasia, and we're not talking about uh, medically-assisted suicide. We're not talking about any of those things. For instance, when my um, mother had, toward the uh, last few years of her life, she had some medical issues, had a stroke after surgery, having heart surgery, and had a stroke, rehabbed over that, had a really good, active life. But I would go to the doctor with her. And she had a really good doctor, and he'd sit down with all of us, and, and uh, whoever took her to the doctor, and, 
And my mother wanted us in there, and so he would talk out loud to us. And we got to watch the progressive nature of their conversation. And see, she had that, that living will to say, this is what I want done. And her doctor was kind of her advocate to say, hey, Miss Martin, what you want to do? And he'd give her the options. And toward the end, her heart began to fail again, and he said, you know, every time we'd meet with him, he'd say, we're a little further down that road. So our options are kind of narrowed. We could do this, we could do surgery, we could do that, change your medication. When she started having the complications this time, he said, you know, surgery is really out of the question. I could do the surgery, but it really wouldn't help you, and you probably wouldn't survive the surgery. And if you did, it really wouldn't improve your quality of life. And there's a possibility you'd have another stroke. So I don't recommend the surgery. And he was giving her the options. You know, here's what we can do and here's what we can change. And, and she said, I won't ever forget this. Because this is what we're talking about this morning. Just having conversation about how do we make end-of-life decisions. Knowing that God's given us life. He wants us to respect life. He wants us to use life. To offer our existence here as a living sacrifice to him. But when all is said and done and we've utilized that wisely and we've used up that time, what do we want to take place? My mother said, I won't ever forget this. He'd pull his chair up and he'd sit right in front of her and he'd take her hands in his and, and they'd have a conversation. He, she looked him in the eye and said, I'm at the end of that road, aren't I? Very personal conversation. This is her doctor. They've been through lots of surgeries. They've been through uh, lots of changes of, of medication. They've been through all these options. He did everything he could possibly do because that's who he was as a doctor. But he was going to be honest with her. He was going to advocate for her. And she trusted him. And she said, I'm at the end of that road, aren't I? She said, yes, ma'am. You are. But what do you want to do at the end of the road? What does the end of the road look like to you? This is a conversation with a doctor. Not her minister. Her doctor. Her minister's son happened to be sitting there. And she told him some things that she liked done. He gave her some options on uh, what to do. And then he turned to the children and said, Do you hear what your mother said? He said, the tendency is going to be, he said, I have a mother. I know what the tendency is. The tendency is going to be to keep her as long as you can possibly keep her. Even if it means by artificial means, you just want your mother here. And he said, but do you hear what your mother said? What she wanted. And she kind of had this... Um, um, I don't know the word to use. This uh, fear is not really the word because she wasn't a person who feared a lot of things. But she didn't want to go into the nursing home. Um, of course, eleven children. You know, she's got caregivers. Um, so we heard what she said. She wanted to be at home. Um, well, with that comes some. How do you make those end of life decisions? If she's at the point, she's at the end of the road, and she can't do a lot of things for herself, what does that mean? Somebody's got to care for her, right? And so what you have to do is listen to her conversation with the doctor, and he gave us some options. Here are some uh, uh, in-home services that are available that people can come in, and these are things they can do. Some of them keep house and... And some of them will do their laundry and some of them take care of some of the medical needs and, and give the, the family some respite, some breaks. But she really wanted us to be engaged in that. You know, she wanted us to spend time with her. But she was open to other people entering her home and doing things. We had those conversations. And so what I'm sharing with you is I've had that experience of of understanding that she selected a medical personnel that she trusted, 
that made that journey with her. They talked frankly to each other. They had exchanges about things. He knew things about what her living will was all about. He witnessed her sign that. She knew which ones of us uh, were available to make sure that that was enacted. So it wasn't just her children saying, we have a living will. She had a medical person to say, this patient has a living will. Do you? We put things like that off, don't we? we sometimes we don't want to have conversation about it. We, we don't engage in it. And so she did. And that was extremely helpful to us. Because there's all kinds of, of changes in health that put you in a dilemma. That you had to decide and now 11 children had to decide. How are you going to do that? We're emotionally at different places at different times for different reasons. It makes it difficult. Then children get in a squabble. You think that's what mother would want? For children fussing over whether you give certain uh, medical help or withhold certain medical help? Not all the children were present when they had the conversation with the doctor. But her doctor engaged in her signing... A living will. And so they all were shown the will and accepted that. But our conversation sometime even after that was, boy, I don't, I don't like that. <laughs> uh, what, if we, what, if we just, what if we just tried this? I wonder. Well, who makes those decisions? I'm not a medical doctor. My, my decision would have been very selfish. Let her stay here as long as we can... You know, have breath in her body. Well, sure. But what did she want? She didn't want the surgery. She didn't want any heroic things done. She wanted just to enjoy her life until she could no longer function by herself. She did that. And in a similar way, I'm just giving some illustrations from our experience so you can put it in your context and for us to take the biblical concept and say, we know that first thing we have to do is consult God's will while we're here. And let's make sure that the things that we're doing are according to His will and how we treat each other and how we live our lives and our bodies are offered as a living sacrifice. We make decisions. Our, our minds are continually renewed to prove those things that He would just have us to do while we're here. But what, when, what about when we're not? What do we want and why? Denise's parents, uh, uh, one Christmas, uh, sat them down. There are only three of them. Um, she's got two brothers, two younger brothers, and, and uh, they said, you're going to be uh, the person that we're going to turn everything over to. Something happens to us. They were both still alive. We didn't know it then. They were both in pretty fair health and um, had some health issues, but not... So a year after my mother passed away, uh, her mother became critically ill. I didn't come home from the hospital. More abrupt than my mother. Didn't have time to prepare. It's kind of an abrupt thing. Um, but while they were there, before they, she got sick, they sat down with her and said, this is what we want. This is our business. Uh, as long as one of us are alive, we're going to handle everything. We're in charge of, of things. If, if it gets to the point where something happens to one of us, you're going to step in and here's the, you're going to have power of attorney and here's how we're going to do it. They were proactive in that. I'm telling you that to say... Wow, were we glad of that. You had something to me? But I had to initiate the talk. Okay. Had, All right. And so some of the younger ones in here that still yeah. had their parents living, I, can, I brought it up okay. several times. I kept saying, we need to have the talk. You, you remember, if you couldn't hear what Denise said, she said she had to be the one to initiate the talk. And uh, we kind of never outgrow that, do we? You remember when we were parents with teenagers, we had to have some talks. Uh, you think, okay, we got that done, but now when you kind of began to swap roles and your parents began to lose some independence or uh, health issues, somebody got to initiate that. How do you do it? And be respectful. Again, you don't want to be morbid and say, you know, I'm afraid you're going to die. You know, you, you're not as young as you used to be, and so maybe we get all this. Just say, look, while we have good health and we can make decisions, I really don't want. I really want to know what you're. Your desires are, because I want to do what you want done. 
So within a year, that conversation they had paid dividends because Denise's mother never came out of the coma, never, never came home. Immediately after her mother's death, her father went and made sure she was on everything because now it's just him. And he saw how quickly things could change and how abruptly something could happen. And he could envision, okay, I can make decisions with my spouse deceased. What if I die? It is not stipulated in the will who's going to do what. How much chaos are you going to have to deal with? He knew how much paperwork was involved with him having all the powers and, and authority to make decisions. He knew how complicated that was. So he made sure that Denise was on the bank accounts and knew all about his insurance information, introduced her to folks, and um, he lived a few more years, fell and hit his head. Um, then the hospital, somebody had to start making decisions, talking to doctors. Guess who that was? Because they did have that talk. And because they did draw up the right paperwork, and because she did have power of attorney, she could have those conversations. And some of those conversations had to be pretty frank. You know, there are some people in the medical field, and particularly in our particular society, where uh, older people just, what can they provide? And so let's just let them die. Now, I'm not talking about let them follow the course of nature according to their will. We're talking about we're not going to do anything else because what are they going to offer society anyway? That's a whole different ballgame, isn't it? So somebody's got to represent that, that circumstance. How do you do that? There's always been, when I say always, the Bible has examples of folks who anticipated their activities that have to take place according to their desires after they die. And they're going to have to entrust that to somebody. You remember in Genesis 50 where... Uh, Joseph was talking to his brethren and they're in Egypt and he knows that God's going to keep his promise and eventually his ancestors are going to, uh, his uh, descendants are going to go back into the promised land and when God keeps that promise, what did he say? When God delivers you, when God takes you back, take my bones with you. Whose wishes were that? You read that story lately? Hundreds of years pass. <laughs> but when the children of Israel divide the land of promise, guess what? There's those old bones. <laughs> In that portion of land where the descendants of Joseph are given land, he's buried there. Why? Because he requested it. Now, here's a generation that didn't directly, specifically know him, are carrying out his wishes. Why? Because he constructed a will himself. Don't take that for granted, that, you know, I'm going to do it, but not going to do it right now. Do it right now. You say, what if things change? Then change your will. We learn from Hebrews chapter 7 that uh, a will is a, a force after men are dead. There's no force at all while they're alive. Why? Because they can change it. Just because you have one doesn't mean they can't change. If, if the person who you had chosen to be your executor no longer can do that, then guess what? You choose somebody else. But you've got to start somewhere and you need to, uh, as you're making end-of-life decisions, um, what do you want? How much effort do you want people to put forth to keep you alive? Are there limits to that? And only you can decide that. Or at least, only you should decide that. If you don't, you're going to leave that for somebody else to wrestle with. And that's a tough one. Especially if there are multiple someones making that decision or arguing about that decision. And you may just leave that to the medical field and they may just prolong that circumstance until all funds are exhausted and no health is ever recovered. That's not to be morbid. That's just saying if we're going to have this conversation and in a, a Bible class sitting where we understand that life is from God, 
But we also learn that since the Garden of Eden, death is a reality. We're going to die. And so how do we make those end-of-life decisions? So we consult God's will, make sure that we are who we need to be while we're alive and well. We construct our own will, and that is we specify uh, what we possess, what we want done with our possession. We specify um, uh, a living will to say, this is all I'm willing to have done. And after that, you know, uh, don't want feeding tubes that just keep a body nourished. When there's no hope of health ever being restored, don't want that. Now, if you don't request that, you're going to get that. You're going to have to decide. These end-of-life decisions are, they have some ethical challenges to them. And if you don't make them, they become an ethical challenge for sure for those who have to make it for you. Because they're guessing at what your wishes would be. And they are somewhat um, uh, operating off of emotions and and hanging on and just perhaps maybe there's some glimmer of hope when really you remember when um, David got to the end of his life the King David um, they had to speed some things up because his health indicated he's not going to live and so they made sure everything was arranged so Solomon could become king because there were other people vying for that kingdom wasn't there now, their circumstance is going to affect that whole nation of people if the person who is alive and conscious and can make decisions doesn't make them while they're alive. We're going to have an all-out war between David's sons. That's just the reality of it. So people around him begin to say, you know, you need to go ahead and let folks know what your wish is. It made a difference for David to call Solomon in, for David to be the one to say, this is who I want to be the executor of things. This is the one who I'm instructing to know who God is and to follow God's will in, in ruling over these people. This is the son that's, that's more like me and his, his attitude toward the people. But when could he do that? What if he hadn't done that? What do you think? We know what would happen. We know what almost happened even though he did do it. There were some of his sons who didn't want to accept his wishes and his will. And almost divided the nation over it. So we know in that context, biblically, what happened. But what happens too often when we're having conversation, we preach sermons. But we don't have conversations about how do we apply it. Now, as a counselor, I deal with that all the time in people's life. And a lot of times what I'm dealing with is the aftermath because decisions weren't made. And now families are divided because there were not wheels drawn up and there was not a, a living will there. There was not a chosen, legally designated executor of the will. Don't shirk that responsibility and ignore it. Well, I would suggest to congregation, that clock is a little dark. It looks like it's maybe eight after, so I'm assuming a quarter after I'm supposed to wind this up. Um, what I would suggest to a congregation of people is we can't cover in 45 minutes everything that's involved in end-of-life decisions. Um, but just to give those basic principles that I've rehearsed. But what I would encourage eldership to do and congregations to do is, um, and what we did when Denise and I were in Memphis, we had a really strong, what we called our uh, young at heart group. They were retired folks who liked doing things together and to go out and eat together and, and go on trips together. But they also were very proactive and they would have, with the elders' permission, uh, they'd have meals at the building during the week and they'd have folks come in to talk to them about different subjects. Sometimes a lawyer would come in and talk about how you drop a will. It's fairly inexpensive to drop a will. In the big scheme of things, it's not very expensive at all. 
And it's all about what you want. And they can tell you in different states have different little nuances of expectations and how it needs to be worded. And those folks were very proactive. They'd come in while they were having a meal, the person would eat with them, and they'd talk to them about the legal side of, of those things. Had people from uh, retirement centers and assisted living places come in and talk to them about this is kind of what would be expected, this is kind of the expenses you'd be looking at, this is what it would take, this is how you do it. I always admired those folks. You know, They didn't just say, we don't want to talk about it. They said, hey... I said all that to say, know what's available in your community. If you've got a, a member of the church in, in the broader community that uh, is a lawyer, have them come in and uh, during the week and speak to folks. They don't have to be retired folks. They can be Christian folks and say, this is what I advise. Talk out loud as, as Christians and saying, you know, we'll do everything we can to, to, to make sure that we make the decisions we're capable of making so other people doesn't have to make them for us. And if you know someone that's helped you do that, then talk out loud and tell them, this person helped me draw up my will. They're very helpful. Have medical personnel come in and tell you what a living will is all about. Why not? I'm not talking about coming and preaching to you on Sunday. I'm talking about you got a nice building. you got a nice fellowship hall. Use it during the week. Have folks come in and, and talk to you about those things. Educate the members of the, of the body to say, these are resources that we have available to us who can explain the little nuances of things. And then... People can meet with them privately about their own business. You don't have to bring up your business in front of everybody. You just know how to take care of it. If you've got members of the congregation who are counselors and you have uh, family dynamics that you're saying, you know, the child that really needs to be the executive of the state is not the oldest child and the oldest child is going to expect to be the, you know, but here's what needs to happen. Then a counselor can say, okay, here's maybe some ways that you could go about having that conversation while you have the capacity to do so. And maybe you could counsel uh, with the whole family and just say, it's not about choosing one child over another. It's about carrying out the will of this person. It's their will. Yes, sir. Laws have changed in Alabama in the last 10 years. Okay. You've got a will or a living will that's older. You need to have it redone. Okay. If you didn't hear that, it said the laws in Alabama have changed in the last 10 years. And if you have a will or a living will, uh, you need to change that. Or at least go and have that reviewed to say, uh, is it still effective? Or how can I make it this effective by changing terminology or addressing these issues? You had something? Absolutely. If you didn't, didn't hear that, Denise said when we were younger, uh, her parents were not members of the church. They would have been most logical from just uh, 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 looking at their health and their life context and their financial ability. They'd been most logical folks to raise our, our children, but they weren't members of the church. And our focus was, we want to make sure our children were raised in the Lord. And uh, so we had some very close friends who were members of the church, and you know, her parents weren't overly pleased about that. It, it caused a few strains, um, but we navigated it. And it, it, it wasn't we didn't want to have a relationship with them, but these were just serious matters. And the ultimate goal was we want our children uh, to know the Lord, to, to be part of the kingdom, to go to heaven. And uh, if you don't have a will, guess what? Guess who's going to get them? The most logical family member. And they would have taken care of them physically. Financially, you know, they would have loved them. They wouldn't have wanted for anything in this world, but they wouldn't have been prepared for the next world. Christians ought to be the wisest folks on the planet. We ought to be. 
and just make good decisions like that and uh, seek counsel, talk out loud. Shepherds over our soul are involved in more than just making sure that sermons are preached and Bible classes are taught. They're shepherding us through life so we make good decisions along the way so that eternal life can be ours. We'll talk in the next hour about caring for the caregiver. You know, when, uh, when choices have to be made toward the end of our, our lives, and Denise is right, we are talking more about maybe older people. Um, we have to make those decisions. We have to take care of them. Man, that's around-the-clock stuff, you know? And I'm going to emphasize to us as, as a congregation of people how do we share some of those burdens? How do we take care of each other during that process? God designed his spiritual family so we could do that. You know that? That's why we are fitly joined together, according to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 16. Listen, by that which every joint supplieth. So we can help each other along the way. I appreciate your attentive nature. We've got... Natives that are restless out there wanting to come in here. So we're, we're going to call it quits here.